Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. So the past few weeks, uh, we've been diving into the book of Revelation. The seven churches are seven letters written by the Apostle John through the dictation of Jesus to seven churches. So if you're just jumping into this or just joining us for the first time online, uh, there's been a lot going on in this series as Revelation is a very complex book. There's a lot to the book of Revelation. It's a prophetic or an apocryphal book. And so inside of that, there's imagery and so many different nuances and things that are going on inside of the book of Revelation. And so we're going to be, you're jumping in kind of to like mid-story. So this is something I like to encourage you. Uh, if you're unable to get to Sunday gatherings uh, consistently and or like you've been watching us online, uh, totally fine. When you have a series like this, it's really good to try to stay up to date with it because a lot of times you're kind of jumping mid-story and you're like, what is this dude talking about? So one of the ways you can do that is we do have a podcast. I would encourage you to check out our podcast, Mosaic WI. It's on all the uh, popular streaming services. But that's a way, if you do miss a Sunday gathering, to kind of stay up to the series. And this is one of those special series where we've been building on each other one after another. So if you have not done so, please uh, jump into that and get caught up. Um, this series has been amazing. So far, we're looking at Jesus talking to churches 2,000 years ago, and we're starting to realize the problems of the church 2,000 years ago actually are some of the problems that we have today. And some of the good things that are happening in the churches 2,000 years ago are some of the same things happening today. And I think this is an important piece because as we have advanced technologically, we have started to believe that some somehow, some reason that we are the pinnacle of humanity and humanitarianism is in our hearts. And so we start to see the world as being more loving and more kind and we're more compliant and we are more patient and we are starting to see that we as humans are part of a larger global peace and we are now the pinnacle of God's creation. And so we start to believe that now in our time and age and day, that we are the pinnacle of everything, but the truth is, is you are not. We are more aware globally. We are more, uh, I would say, really in a lot of ways, more loving globally because we see and have started to see other cultures as important. We are changing the way we think, but technology has pushed us to the edge to think that we are the pinnacle of all of history and you are not. How do I know this? 2,000 years ago, John is writing a book about problems of people, and he's still talking about us today. So we haven't advanced that much. All we've done is put computers into our pockets. Like, we are still humans, which means this. The problem with humanity is this continuing problem through all of history. We have the same problem, even though we're advancing technologically and with our global presence and how we are as humanitarians. Like, we're changing the way we think, but we're not changing the problem. The problems are still existing within humans. And so in one sense, man, there's no time in history like there is right now where we have so much information at our fingertips. On the other sense, man, we really haven't come very far in 2,000 years. And that's what we're going to dig into today in this book. So I want to give you a little bit of background to catch up real shortly. Uh, Jesus is giving a message, and this is to the third church. Um, I will take out this map here I have for you. Um, on this map, 
uh, we're taking a look at where these churches are in relationship to uh, the, the writings of John. And we had already done Ephesus and Smyrna, which is on the left side, and this is called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. In Asia Minor here, you can see the small little gray box on the bottom there. Uh, that is Patmos. It's this random island off the coast, and he's exiled right now. So the Apostle John is exiled for being a disciple and disciple-maker. So he's sharing his faith. He's doing what Jesus told him to do when he left, which is to go and make disciples. Um, churches are now being sprung up along Asia Minor. And kind of curious, they're kind of in a circle, uh, in a circle. Uh, that's just my, I know how, they're in a circle. I don't know what that means. They're in a circle. All right. So uh, as you see here, we've been moving up uh, north the west coast. Now we're going to head to the very north, north and we're going to go to Pergamum. In Pergamum, uh, this church is gathering. And as these churches are gathering, I want to give some insight to any of these churches and especially Pergamum. When you drove here today, you passed five to ten different churches. They had signs on the walls. They said, welcome. They had little flags. Some of these churches even had those crazy guys with the arms that wiggle and stuff with the airflow, right? Like, hey, come to church, right? Uh, you passed a lot of churches on your way here. I'm glad you joined us this morning. Um, if you're sitting at home, you've passed nothing, but you've passed churches before. Um, but as you've come here, you are realizing that their churches, especially in the United States, are all over the place. And in us being southeast Wisconsin, there's churches, a lot of churches all over. And as you've passed these churches, there are people of right now gathering who are having a Sunday gathering, and they're gathering to worship God and their uniqueness and their denomination and their style. And there's different ways of that. And there's churches who are not Christian who are gathering right now, who are not Bible-believing, who do not teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are gathering right now and have the freedom to do so. What we don't remember when we start to read about these passages, that church of Pergamum and all those churches, they were the church of the city. They were outsiders. They were a group of people who were outsiders to the culture. They were starting to worship some crazy man who was some prophet from Jerusalem. And this crazy prophet said that he was God. And these group of people have started giving their life to him. And so the Jewish people saw the Christians that were coming, if they rejected Jesus as Messiah, as absolutely blasphemous. This is blasphemy to say that he was the Messiah because we do not believe he is. To the Gentile or the non-Jewish people, they see him, these groups of people, and they see Jesus as just as another God. And they've got thousands of gods, and they don't really care, except these Christians are really annoying. So there's a subsection of culture, and there's a subsection now of the Jewish culture, and so they're outcasts. So when you're an outcast, and you have an opportunity to gather together, you're going to come together, and the look of your gatherings look very different, because they didn't pass five to ten churches on their way. They just were it in the city. They were the church of Pergamum, the church of Ephesus. And so these outsiders out there are surviving and loving and building together. So if you missed our sermon last week, we talked a little bit about that, how we rely on each other as the church for our needs. And so as they're gathering together, remembering that this is a cult to most people, that this new Jesus cult is starting to go, bad things are starting to happen within the church community. They're not liked. In fact, they're despised. And if you've read the Old Testament, or excuse me, the New Testament, excuse me, and you've read the writings of the Apostle Paul, which a lot of the New Testament is written by, the Apostle Paul started his journey by persecuting Christians. 
He was a Jewish leader and who also had Roman citizenship who goes on to this pilgrimage of stopping the movement of Christianity because he believed it was blasphemy. So in his correct Jewish thinking, anyone who does not speak of God correctly, they were to be stopped. And so he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. So he was on this pilgrimage of stopping and persecuting and ending Christianity. And if you know the story of Paul, the story goes on that Jesus appears to him. He changes his his entire life and actually becomes the very first church planter 2,000 years before me. So the church planter Paul now starts planting churches because his life is turned around. But the persecution started very, very early in the church and it started to ramp up. For all of you history nerds out there, in 64 AD should be a time in which, if you remember that time, 64 AD, it's the great burning of Rome. Rome starts on fire. The then emperor Nero says, this is all because of Christians. This Christians started this. And so if you've ever seen movies or you've seen different stories of Christians being fed to lions and them being burned at the stake. This is the time of Nero. Nero was a vicious, wicked man, and he did everything he can to stop this movement. And so 64 AD, this movement is going, and the persecution is now ramping up. Now, this persecution and the attempt to end Christianity, strangely enough, spread Christianity, because now Christians couldn't just huddle in one space. They were huddling in major areas, They now got spread like wildfire, and as they spread, they did what Jesus told them to do, which was to go and make disciples. Now, I don't want to scare you this morning, um, but I just want to put this thought in your head for a second, okay? So don't be scared, just let's just process this. If our church was persecuted, and you had to spread, and you went to other cities, and you went to other countries, and you had to take your family and move because Mosaic Church, if you stayed, you're going to be killed, you most likely would say, no problem, I'll go to the church I passed on the way home. They're not persecuted. Well, you know, I'll just stop at this church or that church, or I'll bounce to different churches. But let's think differently. Let's say the church of Christian, Jesus Christ, the church in America is being persecuted, and the only way forward for you to live your faith is to scatter. Would you keep talking about Jesus? Would you keep talking about him? Do you even talk about him now? Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. And in this, these new young Christians are giving their life to the cause of spreading Christianity. If you had to spread, would you keep talking about him? Or you'd be like, nah, I'm cool. And not really, I'm not, I'm not part of those guys, but I'll secretly worship him in my back closet. These Christians spread. And it was the persecution that set Christianity as wildfire because people who never heard of it before, they became the first missionaries. And so now Christianity starts to spread like wildfire, even as persecution rises. So as persecution is rising, Christianity is growing because now they have to stand for their faith. In a lot of ways, it's the real Christians stood out. The ones who didn't really want it were like, I'm done, and they stepped away. But the ones who kept going were teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that he was the Son of God, he was the Messiah, and they're preaching the true gospel. So this spreading of this faith now is now pushing forward, and that's in 64 AD. And now we're pushing forward about 30 years into the writing of Revelation. And this church now in Pergamon, we're going to learn here as we read into our scripture, has gone through persecution. 
that has caused a major damage inside of the church. Let's get into this. Today we're in Roman, or Revelations 2, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. They'll be on the screen behind me, as well as with your Bible apps um, and anything you have for their iPads or phones that you like to use. Paper works great too. Uh, anything you want to do to read along or on the screen, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. This is what the church of uh, Pergamum has from the Lord. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have, told, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Again, if you're jumping into our series, you're like, bro, what is happening? There's a lot there. And if even if you've been in the series and have read, what is all these names and what's with stones and manna? It can be very, very confusing. And so when we do biblical interpretation, it's very important that when we do Bib Interp, that we do a very thorough job of understanding what is being said. We're missing the major passage here, especially in a book like Revelation. You've got to slow down in these types of books and understand before you move on. And so today, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to slow down before we move on. Before we move on, back to Jesus. In the original chapter one, we learned about Jesus, and he is described by John. And John's describing him in all these different attributes. And one of the attributes is that out of his mouth comes this double-edged sword. And if you remember in chapter one, Jesus is sitting among seven lampstands. And so around him is this image, and there's imagery in these type of books, seven lampstands representing the seven churches. Jesus is showing his presence among the churches of Asia Minor. And now this double-edged sword, like coming out of his mouth, is terrifying. And if you think about this, like all this imagery, like was there a little literal sword coming out of his mouth? I don't know, but it was like a double-edged sword is what John tells us. And this double-edged sword imagery is really, really important for us to not skip, guy, skip by because Jesus is the word of God. And inside of scriptures, swords are always represented with the word of God. So Jesus is the literal word of God, showing like the word of God is like a double-edged sword, is that this sword coming out of his mouth is the power of God and his word. So in Genesis, we see Jesus is at creation, and Jesus literally speaks into existence us. Creation is spoken. The only thing that we see is God forms man, and we don't know how that was done, but God forms man. The rest, he says, let there be light, and there's light. And so his word, the word of God is so powerful. It's the authority of God. It's the action of God, and it is the son of God. So Jesus is representing both the Son of God and the Word of God, which those two are melded together, and this double-edged sword is coming out. Now, why a double-edged sword? Why is that important? 
Rome used double-edged swords all the time. The Roman armies used double-edged swords. They had two edges on them, right? So, so either way that you would swing this blade, I can chop you this way or I can chop you that way. This double-edged sword was extremely deadly and extremely dangerous, but the double-edged sword was used mostly to stab so that as it entered into the body, think of it as like a blade of an arrow. This starts, it goes through and does the most damage. I know you're like, oh, this is Sunday, bro. What are you talking about this for? The double-edged sword goes in and does the work and then is pulled back out. It is a very deadly, deadly weapon. On the other side of the double-edged sword, it's sharp on both sides. Like we have steak knives, right? Or we have like our cutlery when you're chopping stuff and that one edge, you're like, get your fingers back, right? And so as we're chopping onions or whatever, imagine if it had both sides of that. You're like, oh, I'm going to press down real quick, crunch, and now you slit your hand open. When we use a lot of our utensils, it's one edge because we know what side is dangerous. The double-edged sword is both sides. And so this was a deadly, deadly weapon during the time of the Roman Empire. Knowing that Asia Minor is completely controlled by Rome, just like Jerusalem was in the New Testament, Roman Empire rules the land at this point, and so Rome occupancy is all over, in which everyone's very familiar with what Roman people would look like and be like. So this double-edged sword is a well-known commodity. This is terrifying. It is a scary aspect of the power of the Word of God. So it's an odd thing to think for a second. Jesus is among the lampstands so that there is peace, but at the same time he has this sword in which in which you're like, ooh, there's conviction here, and there's a little bit of holy fear. Because the presence of God gives us peace, but at the same time, the word of God and God's presence, because of our sin, should terrify us. So the word of God, as you are so such a sinful terrible person like I am, my sin right now as I see the word of God against me, all I feel is this fear of like he knows everything that I've done. So the presence of God and the word of God, these two are combining together, and this is purposeful for the church of Pergamum. Now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, we have no fear in the Lord because the fear of the Lord is gone because he has taken all of it for us on the cross. Let me pause there for a second because a lot of you have very bad theology on this. We believe that, not all of us, we sometimes, we believe that because of my sin, God's always mad at me. Even though I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I've given my life to Christ. I believe Jesus is the Son of God, died, came for me, rose on the third day. He did this for a forgiveness of my sins. He is alive and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's coming back again. We believe that, but at the same time, you're like, God's always mad at me for my sin. God isn't mad at you for your sin because Christ has already saved you from your sin. What Christ, we're going to learn in Pergamum, what God is calling you to is to repent and change your life. So stop sinning. He's like, you're now mine. Why are you a prince or a princess living in mud and sinning? Your sin is creating a cancer that continues to kill everybody. You're forgiven. Your job is to speak of forgiveness. And all of our sin is forgiven. But we now must change our lives. And the beautiful balance here, and this gets really deep, we won't talk about today, is if you've given your life to Christ, shouldn't you be fighting to get rid of sin in your life? If you've given your life to Christ, 
doesn't the word of God say that we are to be transformed into his likeness? And it's an ongoing process. We don't arrive, but we're fighting to be more like him. Or do we give our life to Christ, meaning I go to church so that God's not mad at me on Sundays, or I feel a bit better about myself, or like, ooh, I took a bath, so I feel squeaky clean? You are squeaky clean because Jesus is squeaky clean. You are a filthy mess. You are covered by the blood of Jesus, and Jesus' work is the only reason we get eternal life. There's no other way to get there. Our work in our life now is because we're being transformed into his likeness. We've taken on his priorities, his life, and his ways. So now I give my life to Christ. And I give my life to Christ to keep fighting. And when I mess up, which for me is only like once a week. Yeah, right. So when I mess up 75 times today, it is covered by Christ. And so there's no guilt and there's no shame because I, I fall at the feet of Jesus and say, because of you, I'm saved. Not because of my works, it's because of you. This is so very important as we dig into the word here. Because we're going to start to see that in Pergamum, there's a problem that's happening inside of this. The problem is, is that Pergamum is trying to balance a world of I love Jesus, but it's okay for me to live exactly like my culture. Let me say this again. I love Jesus, but it's totally okay for me to live and adapt or adopt my culture. And these two are totally okay. And so Jesus has a solid, solid word for them. The presence and the word of God is going to bring conviction. And this double-edged sword is going to slice through and say, mm, I love you, but there's something that you're forgetting. You, I have something against you. And this is what he talks about. First of all, we start with Antipas. Antipas, we don't know exactly who this is. Christian tradition says that he was an ordained as a leader by the Apostle John inside of this church. Um, he's the one who started the church in Pergamum. Um, he's the leader. He's your pastor, whatever bishop, whatever you want to call him. He's the leader of the church at the time, right? And so as the leader of the church, there is a tr Christian tradition that during the time of Nero Domitian, which came after Nero, that the persecution was so great that it had come through this area and that he was killed. He was martyred during this time for standing firm in Christ. And so as the persecution spread throughout Asia Minor, Antipas was one of those who stood strong and died for the faith, which means at 64, we're now approximately 30 years later, the people of the letter, some of them had probably seen, witnessed, or been a part of Antipas's death. If they went through this, if Antipas was being martyred for this, which means the church has been martyred for this, which means he is one most likely of many people who are dying for the cause of Christ. And he says to him, church, 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 guess what? I see you. Your leader got taken out. My faithful witness got taken out, but you stood strong. And for this, I'm proud of you. And remember last week, I see you. I see you. Good job. I know that this was hard. I know the world's against you. I know the culture is against you. Your leader was killed, but you didn't turn your back on me. Well done. But there's a problem. Let's go back to verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. 
Oh, Jesus sees us, sword of his mouth. There's peace, yet there's conviction. He's like, I see you, but here's the problem. There is an issue going on with your church. And who is this Balak and who is this Balaam? Balak is the king of Moab. We go back to the Old Testament, back to the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, we see that this king, King Moab, asked a prophet named Balaam to go and curse the Israelites. So Israelites are wiping through everything. They're feared by everybody. He says, I need you to go and curse them to stop what is happening. But the Lord directed Balaam to not do that. He said, actually, instead of cursing them, I want you to go to the Israelites and bless them. So he does that, He dis- but then he disobeys the Lord, and then he goes back to Balak and says, this is how you can weaken them, just cause them to sin. You can weaken them by causing them to sin, and by causing them to sin, just have them adapt into the culture, and they'll be fine. Have them get into sexual morality, have them get into all these issues that are going on, and then they crumble and fall apart because their God leaves them. So now you've got this other story going on. So Balaam and Balak have this shtick going on in the background in which the Israelites, this is the way to weaken them. And now Jesus says, you know what? You guys are teaching the same thing. You're teaching that it's okay for us as new believers. You follow me and you're saying it's okay to just go and sin and it's no big deal because don't you know that that's weakening you and that's causing you to fall apart and that when we as followers of Jesus Christ, simply flush into the fold of sin that your who you are is crumbling and falling apart. And on top of that, there is another big issue is that we are looking at this from the aspect of our culture, but let's look at it from the aspect of their culture. Jesus says that this place is so wicked and evil that like Satan lives there, but Pergamum was the center of pagan and emperor worship. Let me change that to our culture. The center of government worship, president worship, hope in everything else, right? But this literal worship back in their days was that the emperor was feared and actually worshipped. And all these pagan rituals were starting up. They'd have pagan festivals. They'd have all these huge, big pagan feasts They would have all this worshiping these false gods and worshiping emperors. And this church is like, hey, we love Jesus, but this has got to be okay. Like, we don't really mean it. It's it's okay. It's just part of our culture. No big deal. No big deal. Like, we love Jesus, but this is part of our culture. And everyone's doing it. And all the culture is saying this has to be right. And even though we know what Jesus said and what he did maybe it's not that big of a deal because maybe if we blend in a little bit more, maybe we won't be persecuted as much. And if we're not as persecuted as much, then we can tell more people about Jesus and blah, blah, blah. Our faith journey and your faith journey has had a lot of those conversations inside of your mind. Why? Because I have those conversations too. It's not that big of a deal. No one's going to know. It's just a small thing. It doesn't really matter. The Bible's kind of gray on that area. I'm not really sure what I believe yet. I kind of believe Jesus, but sometimes I don't want to be a Jesus freak. All these different stories start to build into our mindset. And then we ask the question, why is my faith so weak? Why am I not strong enough? Why do I not, why do I not feel the presence of God in my life? Why don't I see God doing things ever? And I'm like, do you even hang out with him, bro? Like, do you know him? Because if you know him, he does not at any time say, it's cool to do whatever you want. Just, you know, hey, I love you. So go ahead and run in the middle of the street. Even though there's oncoming traffic, I'm a good dad. 
You're just running in the middle of the street. You might get by a bus. It's okay. It doesn't matter. You do what you want. That's the worst parenting tip ever, by the way. If he loves us and cares for us, wouldn't he try to give us what's best? And what's best is the word of God, what he teaches us. But why are we always pushing so hard against it? And let's just call about the American church, because that's what this series is about. Why are we always trying to say, what loophole can we get into our culture so we're just okay? We're cool, but we're okay. I love Jesus, but this part's okay. It should never surprise you that culture is going to always push against the word of God because it's been doing it forever. If you read Old Testament and New Testament, it's always being pushed against over and over and over again. But this is the key that we have to remember. Our culture, the culture before us and after us is never going to follow the way of God. So stop believing a politician is going to bring Jesus back to America. He's not. Who's going to bring Jesus back to America? The believers of Jesus Christ who call for revival. And it starts with our hearts. It doesn't start from an official. It doesn't start from some government employee. It doesn't start anywhere else except for our hearts and our love of Jesus Christ. But we want so bad for our culture to change to be Christian. And so why in the world do we spend so much time on social media bashing everybody who doesn't live by Christian morals? Friends, the world is going to live as the world is. It always has and it always does. It's our job to hold our faith, speak life into those people who we are discipling into our culture to speak the name of Jesus Christ and what is good. I'm not mad at people who don't follow him, not angry, and they're not less than me. What I see the world as is what Jesus calls us to, lost, broken, and our heart should be broken for everybody who doesn't follow him. And so now my heart is broken, and the world is going to do as the world does, but let me flip the script to Christians. Christians, if you follow Jesus, it's a different story. If you say you follow Jesus, now our story is different, and when you sin, I call you out on it, because that's not the way of the master. When we sin, as brothers and sisters, the world calls us to be accountable to one another. And so now I sit you down or we sit down and say, brother, sister, you need to stop sinning. That is not the way of God. And then usually people are salty, which I understand. But that's our job because we live by a different code. We live by the book. And so as people of the book, of the word of God, we live so differently than the world. But we as Christians, it's so weird. We look at the world and we're blaming them for everything. Um, Jesus came to save the world. If there's not a movement of God, let's blame ourselves. Maybe we're so wrapped up in our culture. We're so wrapped up in the next sociological movement. We're so wrapped up in what the next thing's going to be. Or we're so angry against what the next movement is. We're angry against what happened. There's going to be that forever because that's what Christians, or sorry, that's what humans do. From the beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is a big mess. The only thing that is good and pure and right is our God alone and in his works, and Jesus Christ and his salvation. So what if we just focus on that for a while and stop worrying about the other stuff? There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. Israel's back in war again. Is Jesus coming back now? I don't know. I don't know. Is this the end times? I don't know. It doesn't change anything because if the end times are today, if the end times are tomorrow, my job is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
period. It doesn't change. My work doesn't change. And if Jesus comes tomorrow or today or the next five minutes, please, because I have to end my sermon early then, let's let him come. Let him come. Nothing changes when I follow the master. But if we are flowing in and out of what culture does, we're trying to somehow fit in. Jesus says, this is what I hold against you. You're just trying to be like everybody else. And he throws out this name, the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were known in this area. Uh, it, just unrestrained indulgence. Absolute adultery, sexual pagan rituals. They were like, the body and the flesh is separate from what we do with our spirit. And so we can love God at the same time and be fully engaged with full sin. Even though the Bible says it's wrong, they didn't have the Bible, but say the word of God. But for us, we say the Bible's wrong, or the Bible's right, and what I'm doing is wrong. I just don't like that part, and I think it's just too restrictive, or it doesn't make me feel good, or it doesn't fulfill my needs. So in this culture now, the way of teachings of Jesus are in relationship now counter to the way of the Nicolaitans, and he's like, I hate them. He doesn't even say like, mm, they're not my friends. He hates them because they're teaching a completely different gospel. So come to Jesus and then live how you want. Come to Jesus and just blend into society. And when I say blend into society, what I mean is this. You adapt into your life things which are not the way of God. I'm not saying like, you hate and you're picketing. Not that's what I'm saying, obviously, because I just said that's not what I do. What I do do is this, is that if I adapt into what the world says is okay, it's no big deal, I just want to do it, everyone's doing it, whatever our silly stories are, we sound like a bunch of 14-year-old teenagers. Jesus has called us to something greater than ourselves in a story greater than ourselves. And as this church has gone through all this persecution, most likely going through more, and they're like, we've gone through a lot, but we just don't want to stick out anymore. And they're starting to go into the shadows. Starting to step back and say, well, I know that adultery is wrong, but it's part of our culture. I know that that's sin, but that's part of our culture. I know that the things that I'm doing right now are wrong in the year 2023, but it's part of my culture. I know that even Christians are starting to bend what they believe in the word of God, but it's part of our culture. And culture is also Christian culture. I'm saying this, I'm on a roll today, so if you're new, I'm so sorry, I'm all sweaty, I'm, just, I'm pounding, pulling. here we go. This is what I'm saying. Even Christian culture is bending away from the word of God, and Mosaic Church will never, ever, ever bend away from the word of God or I quit. It is the word of God in which we have our stake, in which we have our hope. It is Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, period. There is a heaven and there is a hell. These are all the words of God and the truth. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to be wrong on the pages that are written for us and put down for us to know the word. That is what we will stand on. So when I call you out and say, hey, brother, you need to stop doing that. Hey, sister, that's wrong. It's not that I don't love you. It's because I love you so much. I have to speak truth into you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're just exploring this whole thing. You've got to figure that out because in one sense, you're not hold to the same law because Jesus is not your savior. So to you, I love you and walk with you and say, man, Jesus can save you from all of your mess. But to the believers today, I'm speaking this. Are we doing a good job of separating what we accept inside of our lives as sin and not sin through the word of God? Or are we starting to blend into our culture like Pergamum? the end of this, Jesus always leaves this encouragement so far, and he leaves this encouragement about this manna and this white stone, which is like super obscure, that to those who, 
who endure, who are victorious, who last to the end. There is this manna that is there, and there's this white stone that is there. The Israelites, when they had uh, the manna, they had the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, inside of there were just precious items that were put in there and followed them when they were traveling. And inside of there was manna. And manna was given to the people when they were traveling. They're out and they're wandering. God would provide every day, uh, except for one day. He would provide six days. He would have this manna for them to collect. The manna then was used to make bread and all these different things. So they had all they needed was provided by God. And so manna was collected and put into the Ark of the Covenant. Curious enough, when God said collect, you can only collect for one day, except on the day of the Sabbath. They then have for two. They collected. If they took more than they needed, it would rot and stink. And so this miraculous food that God provided, they took some and was instructed to put into the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was a belief among the Jewish people that when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, that the manna would be used to feed everybody. That when the, when the Messiah comes, that this manna would be then, would be then given to the Jewish people, that this would be the show of the miracle of Jesus, or the Messiah. And what's really cool about this is when you know Jesus' story, he fed 5,000 people with bread, and there's a beautiful tie back to this manna and how he fed people miraculously from a small thing for many things. A little bit of a church history or church fact for you. On the other side was this white stone. These white stones were admission tickets into these pagan festivals. For the pagan culture or the Gentile culture, you'd get a white stone, and this was like your ticket, like I've got my ticket. And so they'd get their name on this ticket, and they were used this to get into festivals or different activities. And so this white stone, Jesus says, to you Gentiles, you understand this, I'm giving you admission ticket into something different. And so for the Jewish people, the, the manna was eternal life. To the Gentile people, this is my admission ticket into what's next. And so he says, both the Jewish and the Gentiles, your admission ticket is into my name, into my heaven. Your new name and your new thing, this is about enter eternity. So to those who are victorious, to my Jewish brothers and sisters, to my Gentile brothers and sisters, you receive eternal life. If you can stand strong through the persecution, if you can transform, now, you know me, but stop sinning. Guys, keep fighting, because if not, I'm going to come down with my sword mouth. I'm going to start wrecking some shop. The word of God's about to come. And when the word of God comes, his sword pierces through us and pierces through sin. That conviction, if you've had that conviction, you've read the word, or right now you're like, this is intense. I feel convicted. It's not my words. It's the word of God, because Jesus is the double-edged sword. Eternal life to those who endure. Friends, our culture has been when we started this, before I even started this, to the day I'm here, to, to the legacy that Mosaic leaves, is that we are always going to stand on the teachings of God, period. has to be that way. Culture's going to shift. Culture's going to move. New things are going to come. Is it frustrating? Yes. Do we want our culture to be biblical worldview? Yes. But you live in a post-Christian society that we've said it before, churches are on decline across America and the world. People are less and less interested because this is getting harder and harder and the culture keeps pushing against and the world's saying, well, I'm just going to adapt with the culture. If the church, if Jesus' people, if our disciples do that, the church is done. But Jesus says this, the gates of hell don't even have a chance against my church because I've redeemed them, I've saved them, and I'm here for them. Mosaic, let's live like it. Let's live like the word of God that's in us. Let's not live like the world. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, 
visit us at mosaicwi.com.